0: Hello and welcome back to the Alatea Foundation podcast. My name is Nawid Jabarkil. Today we're joined by Anne-Sophie Corbeau, Global Research Scholar at the Center on Global Energy Policy, based at Columbia University in New York. Anne-Sophie is a world-renowned expert on trends in the gas industry and we're very excited to hear your views. Welcome, Anne-Sophie.
1: Hello, Nawid. It's very nice to be with you today.
0: Great, so let's get started then. Maybe COP26 would be a good uh, marker point to begin. What are your overall overall thoughts on the conference that we've just had, its outcomes, and how do you think the the deal that was reached in the end will affect the global gas industry?
1: I think... We are coming out of COP26 with probably more optimism uh, but also a sense that there is a lot to do. I mean, uh, we have seen a certain number of commitments, for example, you know, India committing to net zero by 2070, uh, Russia and Saudi Arabia by 2060. Uh, There have been also a certain number of pledges, some of them are going to impact directly the gas industry. So, for example, there has been the methane pledge and we can talk about that later. Uh, There has been also an agreement to phase down but not phase out. Coal, uh, which is important for the coal and gas dynamics. And I guess, you know, this kind of commitment has probably disappointed uh, some people. Uh, Also, uh, one comment which doesn't really affect the gas industry uh, is a comment uh, to add and reverse uh, deforestation by 2030. This is very important. Something which was also quite unexpected was um, the agreement between China and the US to boost uh, climate cooperation. I mean, given that the relationship between the two countries are relatively tense. I mean, I think that that was a very welcome development. But in practice, I mean, there is a lot to do. So I think, you know, to summarize this COP26 was probably not as good as we had hoped, but probably not as bad as we feared. And now it's back to work for everybody because, you know, these pledges, they need to be translated in practice into something concrete. And this is exactly the key problem now.
0: Yeah, and I think still a lot of disagreement, particularly among the the nations themselves, almost 200 there, about how it's going to impact all of them and the timeframes that have been set. But let's look at gas because arguably um, it's been perhaps the most volatile uh, source of energy over the past few years. Ex- explain why you think that that is. Why has it been on this sort of roller coaster ride? Uh, I mean, it's your area of expertise, so I'm sure the audience will be fascinated to hear your analysis.
1: Yes, and I mean prices are. Really at record levels. I mean, I was looking at the prices yesterday. We have reached uh, 130 euros per megawatt hour, which is 42 dollars per MMBTU in Europe. I think this is people need to get a sense on how high this is. This is like almost five times the kind of average prices that we have seen uh, in Europe over the past five years. So this is really unexpected and we have never, ever seen such prices on a sustained basis. I mean, we have been above $30 per MMBTU almost on average for the past three months. So this is not a blip, this is something which is staying with us and is probably going to stay with us for the winter. As to why we are in this situation, I think there are six main reasons. Five of them are linked to fundamentals and another one is more about geopolitics. So we have seen a very rapid Uh, economic recovery. That's the first reason. We have seen also unusual weather patterns which have increased the gas demand. So think about additional demand for heating because we had a very long winter in Europe. We had also extremely cold weather in Asia at the beginning of 2021. But we had also extremely hot summers which have increased the demand for air conditioning. At the same time we have also seen low hydro and low wind in some regions. I mean Brazil, for example, is facing the worst drought in a century. So, of course, they need more energy and China is the same thing. They have a problem with hydro. In Europe, we have seen less wind. So this is the the third reason. The fourth reason is that we have seen a combination of high commodity prices, especially coal prices were really high, especially in October, before China intervened. So coal prices were at $250 per tonne. And you add to that the fact that carbon prices in Europe are also at record high, they reach about €90 per tonne. So you have kind of a relationship between these three uh, different prices, and they are all linked to each other. The fifth reason, which is also linked to the fundamentals, is that on the global LNG market, we have seen a lot of uh, LNG supply issues. I mean, Norway, for example, the facility has been off. We have seen some problems in different countries, which were also linked to the fact that in 2020, we couldn't do the maintenance and they have been postponed to 2021. And finally, the final reason, which is a mix of fundamental and geopolitics, is Russia. So the the supplies of pipeline gas to Russia, they have not been as high as the market was expecting. And this is also happening in the context of, you know, for for Russia to try to get the North Scheme 2 pipeline, which is linking directly Russia to Europe and especially to Germany, operational. before we started this winter, people were expecting uh, this pipeline to be operational. Now, between the certification issues, so the Bundesagentur has said that they are going to stop the said they stopped actually uh, the certification process uh, because the, the entity which is going to operate Nord Stream two needs to be basically based in Germany and this is basically postponing everything and on top of that this is happening in the context of Russian troops which are at the border of Ukraine Uh, the US doesn't want this pipeline to be operational there is also within Europe uh, a lot of discussion about whether we need this pipeline or not and and this is basically what people are looking at so right now people are looking at two things the weather and whether or not Russia is sending more gas through the usual and the, the historical and existing pipelines. These are the the two things that people are looking at.
0: It's interesting. Five of the six things you touched upon there were market related, but I can't remember an energy issue in recent times which has had such great political ramifications, whether it's in the US and President Biden or companies going under in Europe. gas companies, for example, unable to to, to supply gas. Uh, This is something that's affecting consumers all around the world. As the northern hemisphere winter approaches, uh, perhaps another cold winter, do you think prices are set to get worse, the volatility set to get worse?
1: I mean, the volatility is just extraordinary. Just over the past uh, 10 days, I mean, we have seen prices in Europe increasing by $10 per MMBTU. We were uh, below 30 last week. Now, a few announcements about the certification and an announcement by the new German foreign minister. And here we are, we are at about 42. And I was looking at the prices just during this morning, and we lost about $3 per MMBTU just within the few hours, so from 8 o'clock to 11 o'clock. So, I mean, this is really a sense of volatility that I have never ever seen in the market. And as you say, indeed, I mean, this is impacting uh, consumers I wouldn't say all over the world. I mean, this is impacting Europe in particular because a lot of uh, European prices is actually linked to these spot prices. Um, Additionally, uh, this is also impacting all the LNG importers which have been relying on spot LNG. So um, LNG cargoes which are linked to either, you know, TTF prices in Europe or JKM prices. So these are directly impacted and what we can see already is that there is some demand destruction in Europe, and there is also some demand destruction in Asia. Uh, in Southeast Asia, the, the demand for LNG has been much lower because, I mean, usually, you know, these countries are saying, oh, this is too high at $10 per mmbtu." What do you think is happening at $30 or $40 per mbtu
0: yeah, that's an interesting point. And, and just on, on one of the other issues you touched upon there as, as, as the causal factors, uh, you mentioned that, that market instability uh, could be because of maintenance issues, storage issues, another thing that's received a lot of attention. Why have the main consumer markets not increased their storage capabilities in, in recent times, you think?
1: I think I want to make something very clear, uh, Europe has a lot of storage capacity, underground storage capacity, the problem is that just ahead of the winter, some of the storage facilities were not full, actually they were pretty empty, and these storage facilities are the ones which have been operated by Gazprom, they are located in Europe, but they are, operating by, are operated by Gazprom, in Asia, however, uh, they made sure that their storage facilities, and this is mostly LNG in Japan and Korea, they made sure that the storage facilities were as full as possible. Uh, we assume that the same thing happened uh, also in China. China has some underground storage, but not enough underground storage if you look at the total size of the markets and the fact that demand has increased a lot. So in China, there is a need for additional underground capacity because the market is growing very fast and also because a lot of its demand is actually residential demand so demand which is going to be higher during winter
0: and and just to go back to, to, to methane you, you said we'll talk about it later but one thing i noticed at cop26 was the, the, the element of surprise when president biden announced the the, the the big uh, plan on, on methane. Some people think it may be a, a quick but essential fix for climate change. How will it impact gas producers do you think and can they fix this emission problem more quickly?
1: I think the first thing about methane is that we need to really understand uh, how much methane emissions there are. I mean the problem is that methane is invisible. And we have a data issue. So uh, first thing is really to understand how much methane is emitted by whom. I mean, you know, it's not only an oil and gas problem. There is also coal and there is also a lot of basically uh, emissions which are coming from agricultural sector. So how much is really coming from the oil and gas and where is it located? So this is the first thing that we need to understand. Uh, There have been a lot of improvements with satellites, there have been also a lot of improvements. Uh, I mean, companies are really trying to understand better, at least some of them. But the the Mitten pledge, which was announced in COP26, uh, is really going in the right direction. However, you can notice that some countries have not signed it. china for example australia so we really need first of all uh, to have better data so this is i think why the emails the international methane emission observatory is essential we need better data we need better reporting and we will also need regulation to make sure that we are actually decreasing the methane emission. But look at the prices now. If we reduce emission methane emission, that means that there is more gas to be sold. And I think, you know, right now, when you are looking at the economics, well, it it makes a lot of sense. So this is really in the interest of companies uh, to understand where they have methane emissions, to try to prevent them and to sell the gas accordingly. And also, I mean, from a reputational point of view, it's absolutely essential that the gas industry solves this missing problem
0: yeah and i think a lot of uh, producing nations are, are are looking at that and also the business opportunity as you as you rightly mentioned let's let's just uh, change tack then a bit um, as as we're approaching near the halfway stage and i want to talk about perhaps the elephant in the room at cop 26 the dirty fuel coal it's still a major source of energy its production Offering employment to to millions around the world, even in some developed nations like Australia, what what are your thoughts on, on on how coal was approached? We saw that last minute fading down from India and China, which pushed for coal to be phased down rather than phased out. Where what's next for the for the industry? Do you think as we look to other cleaner sources of energy, and can it be saved by carbon capture and storage?
1: I think you know this is a typical example of you know what the Western world is looking at and what other countries are looking at. I mean, simple fact, two thirds of today's coal consumption are in two countries, China and India. Now you look at China. I mean, right now they are consuming coal and a lot of coal because they are facing power shortages. So, you know, for them also a very important coal producer. I mean, this is very important to continue to have um, electricity generation and, and the the simple source for them is coal and let's not forget that you know one of the reasons why we are having uh, such a high electricity demand in china is also because we in western countries i mean you know we want goods i mean we want the christmas gifts and a lot of them are going to come from china so i mean you know let's be very clear about why also we are seeing these kind of problems and in india i mean also india depends a lot on coal Uh, we have seen very ambitious targets for example to have 500 gigawatt of non-fossil fuel um, capacity by 2030. But, you know, this capacity is going to be first in order to meet additional electricity demand. And maybe it can reduce somehow the coal-fired generation, but it's not going to completely remove the coal-fired generation. This is first of all because India is growing and people need more electricity, and a lot of people do not have access to electricity. And also a very simple fact, I mean, coal right now is so much more profitable than burning gas at these high prices. So you talked about CCUS. Yes, CCUS could help coal. Uh, First of all, you need to develop the CCUS, but let's not forget one thing is that for every single kilowatt hour of coal-fired generation, you are going to emit twice as much CO2 as for gas.
0: Yep, yeah, and I, uh, let's uh, touch upon gas, but I think that the issue of legacy is quite important, particularly for countries like China as well, with more than half of the world's coal Five plants there. It's not just simply going to be an issue of turning off the tap, so to speak. But you mentioned gas. What are your thoughts on the future of the gas industry? Because these rising prices, not bad news for everybody. Some producing nations like Qatar, for example, and others uh, may be seeing this as an opportunity. But where do you see gas heading? Will it be a standby fuel, for example, in the future with this drive towards renewables, so when the sun doesn't shine or the wind doesn't not blow, gas
1: can step in? I think we need to be very realistic, I mean, for gas to have a future and especially for gas demand to increase in the developing world, because we know that in, you know, developed countries like Europe, the US, Japan, I mean, gas consumption is going to come down because of energy efficiency, because of displacement by renewables. So the future for gas is in the developing world. And for that, natural gas has to be affordable. And I'm sorry to say that, you know, I mean, the $30 per MMBTU or $40 per MMBTU, this is not great news. I mean, if you want to convince countries like India, like Philippines, like Vietnam to say yes to natural gas or to LNG, it needs to be affordable it cannot be in 30 dollars per mmbtu or even 15 dollars per mmbtu range. I mean it needs to be in the six to eight dollars per mmbtu range. And then the second thing and we have already talked about that is that you need to basically improve the green credentials of natural gas. So you need to tackle the emission problems and you will also need to develop CCUS. This is absolutely fundamental because if you only Develop natural gas, but you do not care about the emissions. Eventually, by 2030, 2040, most of the emissions are going to come from natural gas. So, gas has to be decarbonized and natural gas has to be associated with CCUS. Now, I mean, uh, whether this is going to be used uh, for industrial uh, purposes, whether it's going to be used for power generation or maybe for, uh, to produce hydrogen, I mean, we will see. But uh, for these three applications, uh, CCUS is going to be absolutely fundamental. And finally, on your point about um, gas providing the flexibility in the power generation sector. Yes, this is very much true and this remains true for the decade to come or maybe decades to come. However, I mean, there will be other tools which are going to provide flexibility like batteries and maybe eventually hydrogen. So, you know, the gas industry has to be also careful not to say, yeah, I mean, gas is the, the perfect solution. Yes, but, you know, there might be also other tools and you have to think about, I mean, how are we going to finance a system where gas power plants are only going to be needed for a few hundreds of hours per year? You know, I mean, in terms of the pipeline, in terms of the infrastructure, in terms of the import. So, you know, you really need to think about the future.
0: Yeah, that's a, a very good point and I think it brings us on perfectly to, to the final issue I wanted to touch upon, perhaps of a more nascent part of the industry, uh, looking at developing hydrogen. Uh, maybe this might be a hard question to finish on, but what colour do you think it will be in the future? It's something you have a research interest in and you mentioned gas and its links to hydrogen. Can the future of gas be it being converted into hydrogen?
1: You know, I was in the previous tra- Previous hydrogen wave. So I started my career 20 years ago with hydrogen and fuel cells, and I realized, well, okay, I am way too early. So okay. I basically waited 20 years and look now, hydrogen is coming back. But let's be very clear. I mean, hydrogen markets right now obviously is still in its infancy, right? And we should not really focus about green, blue, turquoise, or whatever the color. I mean, right now the imperative is to develop a market for hydrogen. We need to reduce the cost. we need to develop the infrastructure, we need to basically make sure that this is a solution which is going to be adopted in the different sectors, so industrial hardware to sectors, uh, transport sectors, uh, the shipping industry, maybe power generation, heating, so this is a problem now. We need to develop hydrogen, whatever the color and whatever the project. And for gas indeed, I mean hydrogen is likely to be a key source of demand, and 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 the, the the problem again is that what are we going to do with the carbon? Because if you are talking about the blue hydrogen, when we are where we are reforming natural gas and we are basically uh, storing uh, the CO2, so you need to develop the CO2, or if we are looking at the so-called turquoise hydrogen, which is pyrolysis, and you get carbon black. But do not forget something is that for every kilogram of hydrogen, you are going to get 2.5 kilogram of carbon black. So very soon we are going to have more carbon black than the current market if we, we are developing pyrolysis at scale. So you need to do something about that carbon black as well. So to summarize, I think there is a lot to do before we even develop, you know, a market for hydrogen. But that could be a good opportunity for natural gas. If and only if CCUS is developed as well at scale.
0: Yeah, coming back to that that same issue again, it's fascinating stuff. Uh, if you do think of any other good business ideas you're working on now, do let us know, because it would be a shame to talk in 20 years time and realize we've missed out uh, uh, on another one. But, And Sophie, that question, probably will leave it there. They're running out of time. But thank you so much on behalf of the Alatia Foundation for joining me and providing us with your expert analysis. I'm sure many of our listeners would be appreciating what they've just heard. The Foundation very much looks forward to speaking with you again in the future.
1: Thank you very much. It was my pleasure.
0: And listeners, thank you very much for your time. Be sure to keep up to date with all of the Alatea Foundation's work by following us on Twitter and on YouTube. Thank you and goodbye.